The scripture reading is found in our bulletins. It's coming from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down beside him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you to God by God. Do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of that man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him. What is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out of the and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's great to be with y'all today. I'm trying to figure out where to, it's a double layered, double leveled podium here. Um, I always love coming to Christ Central. Uh, my wife and I have worshiped here a number of times uh, visiting, coming to make an announcement or just to see friends. And uh, I always love um, the vibe and I love the liturgy. I love the confession of sin and the assurance of pardon, just how intentional the focus on Christ is. So, but believe me when I say I sincerely do love being here with y'all today. Um, Before we jump in to uh, this text a little more, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, unless you give us grace, um, Unless you give us eyes to see, uh, unless you give us ears to hear, and unless you soften our hearts, we're just, we're just cognitively engaging your Bible um, at best. 
Maybe we're spacing out. Maybe we're distracted and preoccupied with something else. But unless you give us the ability to see Jesus and to savor Jesus, we'll miss him. So I pray, God, that you would help us to behold our Savior, to behold the one who took on flesh, though he didn't have to, to live for us and die for us. May we see him, may we savor him more and more this morning. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, um, you probably didn't notice him, but, but he was up here, my son, little Henry. My daughter was up here too, but Henry in particular, it's like a dream come true for him to be paraded up on stage in front of people. He's kind of, you know, he likes attention. Um, and I can remember back, he's four now, but I remember back to when he was around the age of two. And he would always be coming up to me or uh, my wife or anybody he perceived to be an adult. And he would always be coming up to people and he'd be saying, I help you. I help you. Which sounds like he was offering help. Like, like he was going to help you with whatever it is that you needed help with. But that was, in fact, not what he was saying. He was actually doing the exact opposite. He was coming up to you and he was begging you for help. Because he's two and there's a whole lot of things that he can't do. So, you know, he'd waddle up to you with his pants around his ankles and he'd say, I help you. Can you, can you help me with this? I mean, I don't know how to do this yet. You know, he'd come to you with a shoe untied. I help you please tie my shoe. He'd, he'd point to something up on a shelf, like a, a cookie or a book or say, I help you. Give me the, I need help. I'm not tall, you know. And you know, I think back to those days and I can never remember once looking at my wife and saying, you know what? We just got to get rid of this kid. Now, now, as Charles said, you know, sometimes you get frustrated and you get irritated, but I never once said, you know, we just got to get rid of this kid. He is a freeloader. All he does is beg. All he does is ask for help. I mean, he never, he's not paying bills. He doesn't have a job. He's not doing any chores. All he does is beg for help. I, I just can't stand it. In fact, it's just the opposite. When I think back to Henry as a two-year-old, I think, man, he's just, I loved helping that kid. I mean, not always. Sometimes it was inconvenient. But for the most part, it really was a delightful thing to be able to help my little boy do what he needed to do or accomplish with whatever it is he was asking help for. And I think when we look at John, not John, Mark chapter 5 this morning, what we see is that Jesus loves to help us. It's it's for the joy set before him that he came into the world. It's his delight to help us. Jesus loves beggars. Mark chapter 10 verse 45 or Matthew chapter 20 verse 28 It makes it very clear. Jesus didn't come into the world in order to be served. And he he certainly wasn't taking a holiday, a vacation from the heavenly throne in, you know, the context of planet Earth. He came in order that he would be able to serve us. He makes it very, very clear. That's why he came. He wants to serve you. But the big question before us, the big question before this community of Gentiles in the region of the Gerasenes is, do we want the kind of help that Jesus is offering? That's the big question. I don't think the question is really, does Jesus want to help us? The question is, do we perceive ourselves as being so desperate, so needy, so beggarly as to need the kind of help that Jesus extends to us? That's the big question. And I think as we get into this passage, we see that by and large, the community that Jesus is engaging does not want that kind of help. So often we forfeit the kind of help that Jesus offers because 
I believe we are resigned to a life of self-centered apathy and fear. That's the first thing I want you to see about this community, the region of the Gerasenes, these Gentile people that Jesus goes out of his way to help. They forfeit that help because they are resigned to a life of self-centered apathy and fear. Now let's get a little bit of context here. As Charles read for us, verses 1 through 8, if you want to turn your attention back to those specific verses, what have we seen? Right away, Jesus goes on this little trip across the Sea of Galilee to to interact with this demon-possessed man. And Jesus is able to not only subdue, but to cure the Incredible Hulk. Like I said, I hang out with a a four-year-old named Henry. I know a lot about the Incredible Hulk, all right? That's That's who he was for Halloween. Bruce Banner, if you know anything about the Incredible Hulk, he's this, he's this tormented man because he, at moments in his life, and it's beyond his control, he turns into this big, giant rage monster, and he's a maniac, and he feels like he can never be with people he loves or cares about anymore because he's so destructive. And Jesus walks into a situation where there's this maniac, this this terrifying man. And the community has been trying to subdue this guy for years. They're not even close to curing him. They're not even close to subduing him. They bind him with chains, and he just snaps it off. And he's living amongst the tombs, and he's crying out because he's in perpetual torment, and he's cutting himself. Because maybe he thinks that way the demons can be released, or maybe he's just reminding himself if he bleeds, maybe he's human. He's totally isolated. He's totally alone. He's totally desperate. The community is desperate. And Jesus walks into the scene and not only subdues this man, but cures this man by merely speaking to him. By merely saying, get out of this man to this legion of demons. The man's cured. Now, certainly these folks, now, if you, if you stopped there, there, there's a side of this story where you'd have to think, okay, certainly these folks will be impressed, won't they? I mean, they've been trying for years to do what Jesus just did. And Jesus just speaks and he does it. They've got to be impressed. Surely these people will, will, will just bow to such an impressive demonstration of power, recognizing their insufficiency and their desperate need in light of such a, a prolific display of power. Clearly, they'll see their inability, right? And, and they'll see that Jesus helped this guy who seemed so utterly helpless. And they'll go to Jesus and they'll say, Lord, if you can help somebody so desperate, so demonic, so needy as this man, then certainly you can help us. Because we all need help, right? They're going to come to Jesus and they're going to say, Lord, we beg you, help us. That's not what they do. Why don't they respond to Jesus this way? Why don't, they, they, why don't they come to Jesus recognizing their need for a Savior such as this and say, Lord, help us? Because for years these people have dwelt in an atmosphere where they have been overtly, obviously, undeniably impotent. They, they've not been able to do anything for this man. Every day, day in and day out, they hear the cries from the tombs and they are reminded that they are unable to do things that they need to be able to do. They are reminded of their desperate position. They are reminded of their beggarly posture and they hate it. 
You see, somewhere along the way, they were faced with this decision. On the one hand, they could recognize and come to grips with the fact that they are needy. They could recognize their neediness, and they could cry out for help. But that doesn't sound too appealing, does it? I mean, who wants to just say, I'm needy. I can't do anything about this problem in my life. I can't do anything when it comes to controlling this person who needs to change. I've tried to help him. I can't help him. And all I can do is just hold out my hands like a beggar and say, Lord, help me. By your grace, by your mercy, help me. Well, that doesn't sound that appealing to a lot of people because we want to feel like we can do something. We want to feel like we are in control on some level. So that presents this other choice. Not admitting our need, but in fact denying that we are helpless. We're not beggars. We we deny that. We numb ourselves to that. We avoid that reality. And we allow our impotency and our denial of it to give rise to apathy and fear. Right? We figure out ways to avoid the reality that we are beggars. You see, these people in the community, they have become apathetic toward people they can't control. The demoniac man is someone they want to be able to control. They want to be able to help him. They at least want to be able to subdue him, but they can't. So they've just sort of marginalized him. They've sort of just put him in exile, right? And they're apathetic to him. You see this very clearly. When Jesus heals the man, nobody comes and celebrates with the man. Nobody comes and says, Lord, thank you. We've been waiting so long for this to happen. Their minds are on something else. Why? Because they had grown so hardened, so numb to this man's need because it's a reminder of their own need. And they don't want to have to come to grips with the fact that they're that needy. They're also fearful of people who reveal or expose their neediness or their lack of control. Verse 15, it says that these people are afraid of Jesus. Why? Well, clearly Jesus has a lot of power. Maybe they're afraid of what he might do with that power. I think there's some level on which that's true. But there's also this deep-seated fear that if this guy is going to be hanging around, it's going to expose a lot more of my inability. A lot more of my neediness. And that is something that terrifies me. I don't want to be exposed. I don't want to be perceived as vulnerable or incompetent or not in control. It terrifies me. And so they're afraid of Jesus. It was in, it was in the liturgy earlier when we were, when we were uh, doing the uh, confession of sin and the assurance of pardon, pardon I loved it, um, where it talked about how we want to feel mighty and we want to perceive God as weak. Because we all have this idolatry of wanting to feel powerful and competent. We all want to be God. And Jesus comes into the scene and he's terrifying to sinners because he's a reminder that we are in fact not God. I want to just try to apply this to us. I want us to think through this intentionally. I want to invite y'all to think about the fact that it is Christmas time. I want, to th- I want you to think about the fact that you probably just spent at least some time with family members during Thanksgiving and that you're about to spend some more time with relatives during Christmas. And these are people that you've lived with your entire life. You know them very, very well. And they know you very well, which means they know your weaknesses. And they are in some ways very inherent reminders of your neediness and of your weakness. And so what do you do? Subtly or not so subtly? You're tempted to avoid them. 
or, or sort of be condescending to them or be defensive around them because your guard is up and you don't want to have to feel needy. See, we adamantly despise the fact that we are powerless. Essentially, we are creatures. We're not creators. We are needy and we're sinners on top of it all, which means that we're desperately depraved and beggarly and we need help. We adamantly don't like that idea. And to reject that idea, to reject the idea that we are desperate beggars means that we will reject the cure that desperate beggars require. That's the second thing I want you to see. Not only are these people resigned to a life of apathy and fear, but they are also then put in a place where they will reject the cure because they don't perceive themselves as needy. See, that's what the people do in this passage. Now, before we unpack that a little bit, I want to make sure that we know that there are two things that are absolutely clear throughout this passage. Number one is that Jesus is powerful. He is infinitely powerful. He is incomprehensibly powerful, and he wants to take that infinite, incomprehensible power, and he wants to use it to help us. That is clear. Jesus goes out of his way to be in the position that he's in. And prior to being in the region of the Gerasenes, Jesus has left the heavenly throne and come all the way down into our sinful, fallen world that is broken. The only person who has ever chosen to do that, to be born, Jesus has gone out of his way to be here. Why? So that he can use all his power to do anything, everything necessary to help us. That's clear. The other thing that's very clear throughout the passage is that we are wretched beggars. Desperately in need of help. Start with that one. We're all beggars. Look at this. This passage is brimming with beggars. Everybody's begging in this passage. Uh, We've mentioned already that the Gerasene community is just sort of implied they're in a beggarly state. Right? They're unable to help this man. They're sort of just getting him off their radar because they don't have to deal with the fact that they're helpless to help him. The demons are explicitly begging Jesus. Verse 7, verse 10, verse 12. The, Jesus are, uh, the, the demons over and over and over and over again are begging Jesus. Now, they don't want to be begging him. They don't beg him as Lord. They aren't delighting to submit to Jesus, but they do, in fact, have to beg because it is the only posture possible when you're in the presence of such power. We see that, that the, the, the demoniac man is begging Jesus, right? Very desperate. We see that the people in the garrison community, verse 17, are begging Jesus. Again, like the demons, they're not begging in a good way. They're not begging in a, uh, I agree with your lordship and I want to submit to it sort of way. But the people in the region of the Gerasenes, they are begging Jesus, in verse 17, to leave. There's this understanding that they are powerless to get him to do this. All they can do is beg. And here's the point. In the presence of such power, there is no other posture possible than that of beggar. That's who we are. I grew up in southwest Kansas, Tornado Alley. And when a tornado comes in through your region or territory, all you can do is yield. You can't do anything. You can run to your basement and it's just going to plow through your house. If the tornado's on a track, it's so powerful. And here we have the the creator, the sustainer of all things, infinitely more powerful than the strongest natural disaster. All you can do in the face of such power is beg. 
Jesus is powerful. Beyond the obvious demonstration of Jesus' power, we've already mentioned how he delivered the demoniac from this incessant oppression and torment that he had experienced for years. But I think that this passage actually goes out of its way to focus us very particularly on the power of Jesus, inviting us to behold Jesus' power in a very specific way. And here's what I'm getting at. Jesus doesn't just walk on the scene and cast out the demon. He seemingly wastes time dialoguing with this man, with the demons, in fact. And then he says to the demon, he asks the demon, what's your name? Now, some biblical commentators think, well, you know, Jesus couldn't cast out the demon until he knew his name because there's power in knowing the demon's name. I don't think that's it at all. I absolutely don't think that's it. There are many other instances of Jesus exercising his power where he doesn't require some some other knowledge. This is, the, this is God in the flesh. This is Jesus who can read people's minds and peer into people's souls. He knows the demon's name already. So why does he ask? Because he wants us to know the demon's name. Because when the demon answers, we learn that this isn't just a demon. This is an army of demons. It's a regiment of demons. Legion. We know this man is in a desperate place, the demoniac man. We know that he's needy. But how needy is he? That's what Jesus wants us to focus on. What are the depths of this man's neediness and depravity? How severe is his condition? He's got a legion of issues, of problems. Perhaps you can relate to that. Perhaps you're sitting here today, whether you you think Jesus is just something you could let come or go, or whether you've put your faith in him, you have problems You know what it's like to feel overwhelmed. You know what it's like to feel like you're treading water and about to drown. You know what burnout feels like. A lot of you are probably on the brink of burnout sitting here this morning. You know what it's like to face a host of issues that make you feel weak and desperate. And this man was right there. And then Jesus gives the demons the permission to go into the pigs. Why does he do this? We're about to see Jesus deny the man the opportunity to come with him, and yet he's going to grant the demons their request to go into the pigs. Why does he do that? Again, I think Jesus does this to demonstrate for us so that we will see it loud and clear, his power. What he delivers us from, what he delivered this man from. And you see it very graphically. He casts the demons out, and they go into not a dozen, not a hundred, not a thousand, but 2,000 pigs who are so immediately in frenzied and tormented that they rush down the steep bank and they want to drown themselves. Have you ever had a moment where you saw something come out of you and you thought, that is horrendous. That was in me? I mean, maybe you had like a surgery or something and they showed you what they pulled out of you afterward and it's like, what? That was in me? I mean, it's graphic. It, it, it could be grotesque. You think, no way, that's in me, perhaps. Perhaps it's not as, as biological as that. Maybe it's you said something in the heat of an argument, and you watched these words come out of your mouth, and you even saw the words, and you acknowledged, even as you were saying them, that these were ugly, heinous, demonic words. And you thought, why am I saying this? Why am I like this? You've had those moments. And Jesus is saying, look at the depths of your depravity. Look what comes out of you. Look what I've come to deliver you from. You are needy. Receive me. Rest in me. 
That's the invitation. As beggars in the presence of such power, though, how do these people respond? Verse 15 and verse 17. Join me back down there. Verse 15, the people respond. They come to Jesus. They see the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion of demons. And he's not demon-possessed anymore. He's sitting there now. He's clothed. He's in his right mind. And they don't react with joy. They react by being fearful. And then those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And then the community says to Jesus, they beg Jesus, please leave us alone. Please go away. Why? Why why do they respond this way? Why not have a party? Why not have the prodigal son slaughter the fattened calf party? I mean, this guy was dead and now he's alive. This guy was a goner and Jesus saved him. Why not party? Because their idolatry is so big. All they can see is that this Jesus fella, he is disruptive. He just just caused an entire part of our industry to just go away. I mean, these aren't Jewish people. These are Gentile people. They don't have any stigmas with pigs or pork products. This was an industry, and 2,000 pigs just got drowned, right? And they're saying, Jesus, you are disruptive. Clearly, you're powerful. We have to beg you to leave. We're in no way, we, we are in no way able to coerce you to do anything. But please leave because we have our lives set up just the way we like them. Okay? And you're like a bull in a china shop, man. You're coming in here and you're knocking things over and you're messing with my priorities and my agenda and we don't like it. You know, maybe these people were, were like us sometimes. They were thinking, well, this Jesus guy, he's kind of cool and, and maybe, maybe I ought to grant him access or jurisdiction over, you know, a few hours on Sunday or 10% of my money or fill in the blank. But there are other areas of my life that I have, that I have set up so nicely, set up just the way I prefer them. And, 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 you know, they are in accordance with what I believe to be right and good. And when Jesus comes in, obviously you run the risk of him doing some demolition work. You see, these people did idolize their, their lives and the way they had set them up. The, the, the issue with the pigs, this proves the point. They are, they are too worldly. They are too materialistic. And Jesus is trying to diagnose that and expose that for them, but they are not having it. So they beg Jesus to leave because he's disrupted. But I think there's one other thing that undergirds that. In this passage, I think we see it, is that Jesus, even more than being disruptive, is, is in our heart of hearts perceived as a threat. He's a threat. He's a threat to our perceived sovereignty. As we mentioned earlier, we're terrified of Jesus because we've worked so hard to take God's job, to to try to perceive ourselves as omnipotent, all-powerful, and all-knowing, and omnipresent, right? We use Facebook this way, don't we? Right, right? I can kind of get an eagle-eye view of all my friends, and, and, and I kind of, I know where they're at and what they're doing, even though most of the information is just silly, right? So I can kind of feel in control here. I kind of feel like I'm in all places at once here. And then if I want to comment or, or like or do whatever, I can sort of feel even powerful to some extent. It might be a silly example, but you know you use that or whatever it else, whatever else it is, in these kinds of ways. You try to feel like God, and I know that's true. Even though I don't know many of you, I know that's true because the Bible says that that is the disease of our hearts. 
We want to be God. It's not enough for us to be made in God's image. We want to feel like him, powerful. And Jesus is a threat to that. When Jesus steps on the scene, more than being just disruptive, he is a threat to sort of our perceived job security because we feel like we are big and bad and competent and in control. We're certainly not desperate, helpless beggars. And Jesus is constantly reminding us that, in fact, we are. It's threatening to us. Have you ever stopped to think about why the world, in so many instances, has rejected Christianity? Now, now some forms of professing Christianity are to be rejected. Uh, but biblical Christianity, what Jesus is all about, and what we get from God's Word, I'm not saying how this gets portrayed by professing Christians sometimes, because sometimes that is way less than perfect. But why does the, the world reject Christianity? Why was the, the church uh, uh, a persecuted minority for 300 years at the outset? When Jesus rises from the dead and commissions his apostles, why did the, the world hate Christianity for 300 years? Why? Because Christianity is all about you, first and foremost, seeing your need for a Savior such as Jesus. A life lived in your place. It's not your life. It's not even you contributing to the life God requires. But it's Jesus living life for you and imputing his perfection for you. He fulfills all righteousness for you. He racks up 30 plus years of perfection to give it to you. Also that he can then not just be willing, but insistent upon dying on a cross. The only perfect man who has ever lived, insisting on dying for you. And the world says, if that's true, that means I'm remarkably needy. I am infinitely more needy than I am aware. And I just don't want to go there. I would rather be apathetic to that. I would rather avoid that truth. We reject the idea that we are wretched beggars. That's what we naturally, are, we're born with that tendency. You realize that the prescription for heartburn is Tums, not open heart surgery. So we're all walking around feeling like we're basically good. And we look at Jesus, and frankly, if we're really looking at Jesus, the biblical portrayal of Jesus, then he looks like open heart surgery. So we're all walking around with sort of a little bit of heartburn, you know, spiritual basic goodness with a few flaws. And so we look at Jesus and we think, I don't need all that. That's offensive to me. That's too much. That's overkill. But if you have a class four heart defect, which means you need a new heart, it means they got to slice your chest open and they got to take out the bad heart and put in a new one. And if you believe that that's the condition that you face, you'll schedule the surgery. To be honest about who we are, to honestly diagnose our beggarly condition, this is what makes you receptive to the cure. And that's what we see in this man. The man who had been demon-possessed, he receives Christ. He doesn't reject the cure. He receives the cure because he knows he's in a bad way. He's hit rock bottom. He receives Christ because he's a beggar and he knows it. Verse 18, after he's been sitting with Jesus in his right mind, uh, uh, assumedly conversing with Jesus, learning from Jesus, um, as Jesus is now getting back into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons comes to Jesus and he begs him. Some translations say he begs him, like over and over again, perpetually begs him persistently that he might be with him. Why does this man so emphatically want to be with Jesus? 
because this man has gone from death to life. This man was in no way deceived about his need. This man had lived amongst tombs all by himself for years in perpetual torment, longing to be cured. He knows he needs Jesus, so he clings to Jesus when he experiences him. And then this curious thing happens. Jesus denies the man his persistent request. Why? I mean, Tyler, you're standing up here talking about how Jesus is so great. Okay, well, what's his problem? I mean, you're saying that Jesus wants to help us. He wants to unite himself to us. He wants to give us his life and give us his atoning death. You're saying that he wants to serve us and that we always need his help. So this guy wants that. Why won't Jesus let him go with him? What's going on? Well, here's what's going on. Because in and through this desperately dependent man, you know, the man who was the least popular. I mean, for years, this was the guy who had been exiled and marginalized, right? Clearly the weakest man in the entire town. Jesus has a very fixed plan to use that man to remain with not just that man, but the entire community. You see that? This man maybe doesn't get it in this moment, but here's the truth. Jesus says, you're not going to go with me because I'm going to stay with you. And I'm not just going to stay with you, but all those little brats in the community who don't think they need me, I love them more than they love themselves, and I'm sticking around to be with them as well through you. You're going to be my ambassador. You're going to be my missionary. You see, the people in the garrison community should have responded like the Samaritans do in John chapter 4. After Jesus tells this fairly promiscuous woman about her sin issues, and she goes back to the Samaritan community and tells them, hey, there's this guy, Jesus, and he's amazing, and he told me all these things about myself that made me feel really vulnerable and exposed. Come see him. And against all odds, these people come out, and they see Jesus, and they talk to Jesus, and then they plead with Jesus to stay with them longer. That's how the garrison community should have responded. They should have said, we need you, Jesus. We need you to live with us and remain with us and to be Lord of our lives because we're not just helpless with this guy. We've got all kinds of issues. That's, just, that's number one on the list. We've got a laundry list of other things that we constantly need supervision for and help with and guidance regarding. Please stay with us. But instead, they begged, they begged Jesus to leave. Instead of receiving Jesus, they rejected Jesus. But here's the deal. Jesus loves them too much. To leave them alone. Just like when my children are throwing the temper tantrum because they need something that they absolutely don't need. And I love them too much to let them just go on doing that. I will intervene. I will do layer upon layer of what they don't want because they don't see it. They don't understand how what they're doing could be harmful to them. Because I love my children more than they love myself, I give them what they don't want. And Jesus does that here. He doesn't leave them alone. Seemingly he leaves, but he doesn't leave them alone because he sends them this missionary in order that these people might receive him. Just as this desperately dependent, demon-possessed man had received him as wretched beggars who need help. And finally, the man hasn't just received Jesus. The man has received Jesus' command. We read in verses 19 and 20. Look back at those verses with me now. Jesus did not permit the man to go with him, but instead he says, 
Go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And then the man went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. The Decapolis, if you have a map in your Bible, you can consult this. The Decapolis isn't just one little dinky town. He went on a preaching tour. This man was so excited about what Christ had done for him. You know, it's like when you see that really good movie and you go see it again with your other friends because they got to see it too, right? Like how you naturally proselytize for, you naturally share with people that with, that which, with which you're so much impressed. When you're really sold out for something and you're invested in something and you're just so excited about it, you'll share it with people. And that's what this man has done. This man has been given the command to go tell people about Jesus. And the man says, I can do that. He's going around telling everybody, obviously, first and foremost, what he had experienced. And he's excited to do that. But I want us to see, ultimately, what is he inviting people to see? It's been said numerous times up here this morning. It's an invitation, but an invitation to what? Fundamentally, first and foremost, what would this man be going around the Decapolis telling people? Well, he'd tell them about his own experience, but then he would be inviting them to see what? That they are beggars. How, how could people receive this as good news personally if they didn't start sympathizing with this man and seeing that that man was a version of the way they were? This man's not the only sinner in the world. They're sinners. I don't know what he said to everybody, but I, I kind of picture things like this. I picture him going into communities and sharing his testimony and sharing what the Lord had done for him and then looking at people and saying, you think that you have your job figured out. No, you don't. Take it from me. I've met Jesus. There is so much that you're missing and Jesus can help you with it. You're not as competent and you're not as in control as you think you are. Sometimes maybe he said things like, I want you to imagine an area of your life where you feel really good about yourself, where you feel really in control, and then pulling the rug out from under him and saying, no, you're not. It's okay because Jesus is going to help you, but no, you're not. You're not in it alone. Jesus will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. And you bring Jesus into your marriage. Anybody who's been married more than five days knows that marriage is hard, right? It's beautiful. It's awesome. You, you, you got married because you wanted to get married, but it's hard. It's difficult. It's a marathon. It's wonderful, but it has challenges. And Jesus says, I want to bring the import of heaven into your marriage, and I want to assist you and give you help every step of the way. You never graduate from this. You return again and again to this fundamental fact that you need me. Your social life, the way you interact with your friends, you think you have that figured out? You don't have that figured out. How much, how much, do you avoid people, as we mentioned before, because they get difficult? Because you had that debate with them, and, you, and, and they were saying something you didn't want to hear them say, and you want to change their mind, but you're not God. You can't flip the switch. You can't make the decisions for them. How needy do you feel when you can't control somebody, and you know they need help, and you know they need to see things differently? Jesus says, it's okay. You're just, you're just now more aware than ever of your beggarly condition, and I'm here to help. I'm here to give you rest so you don't experience burnout trying to do all kinds of things 
that you aren't meant to do. You're a creature. You have limits. I'm here to help. Your money. Y'all, I just thought about this for two seconds, and I thought, our world doesn't get money. Our country is in debt. Most people in here have some kind of debt, or you have some buyer's remorse or something. You don't, you don't handle your money perfectly. You need help. Your entertainment preferences, you need help. Your parenting, you need help. Whatever it is, God is saying, look at my son. He didn't come to be served. He didn't come to recruit a varsity squad. He came to love beggars. 